I was on a plane last night coming back from Indianapolis to Las Vegas. And when you fly with people going to Las Vegas, they talk about just about anything and everything that they hope satisfies. And I was thinking about it that as they, the men were singing that. Uh, there was one particular man sitting two rows ahead of me, and I won't tell you <laughs> all the things he talked about uh, or even what he did for a living, but um, just amazing. He talked the entire flight. Uh, from Indianapolis to Las Vegas, a little over three hours, and uh, just talked about all the things in this world that he finds satisfaction in. And you could tell that none of it was really satisfying uh, because there's this quest for more. And this whole weekend, you know, that he was approaching in Las Vegas was all about trying to quench that thirst of his flesh. And uh, yet Jesus Christ solves all of that. In one decision, that decision is called salvation. And uh, young people, don't think that this world has something better to offer. The devil will tell you you're missing something, that you're you're missing out because you're a Christian. Don't believe that lie. Uh, You're not missing a thing. Uh, I have a friend, Dr. Ed Nelson, who's 98 years old. He He is still pastoring, 98 years old. He has never watched five seconds of television in his entire life. Now, that's, that's quite a feat <laughs> to get through life and never have watched a single minute of television. And I remember hearing him say that when he was in his 70s, and I thought, what has he missed? And you know the truth is? Not a thing. Now, I enjoy watching, you know, games, and I, I like watching the news time to time, and sometimes there's a good movie or show, you know, that's worth watching. And, you know, to be entertained or amused for a few moments is great. But really, if you hadn't seen it, if I hadn't seen a game, my life wouldn't be any different. It really is a trick of the devil for us to believe that we're missing something by being a Christian. Uh, We can be satisfied, contented in Christ. And what a blessing that song was. Thank you, uh, men, for singing that. And and thank you, Pastor, for letting me come. Uh, Back to Royal View, it's a pleasure, it's just a joy to see each one of you. Well, let's go to John chapter 11, John chapter 11 for our text this morning, and we're going to dive into this chapter a little bit this morning, but let's read the first six verses. I think you'll, many of you be, be familiar with the account in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, an amazing miracle takes place in this chapter, John chapter 11, and starting with verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. God has not lost his miracle working power. Sometimes we think about miracles happening in the Bible, in the Old Testament, or, you know, or the New Testament. We think of certain miracles that God did that were amazing displays of His power. But did you know that God still has that miracle working power today? He hasn't lost any of His ability to do a miracle. 
Now, this story begins with a man by the name of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, becoming ill. His sisters, Mary and Martha, with whom he lived, sent word to Jesus. Now, they didn't have uh, a smartphone. They didn't have uh, text messaging. They didn't have emails. They didn't even have the post office. Uh, They had to send a literal person to wherever Jesus was to let him know that this friend, Lazarus, had taken ill. So Jesus receives the message. Perhaps it took a day or maybe two days for that message to, 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 to come to him. He receives it. But according to verse 6, he does nothing. He abode still in the same place where he was two days. Now I'm sure when Mary and Martha sent the message, they thought when Jesus hears this, he will leave whatever he's doing. He will come to Bethany and he'll heal our brother. They knew he had the power to do that. They'd seen him do that. Maybe they even thought he could just speak the word and Lazarus would be well. He wouldn't have to come. He could just speak the word and Lazarus would be well. He did that on occasion as well. So they, they obviously thought by sending the message that Jesus would do something about it. But he apparently doesn't do anything about it. Do you understand that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we pray them? If he did... He wouldn't be God. You would. If you got every prayer answered the way you pray it, you'd be God. And sometimes God's no to our prayers turns out later to be a greater yes. By the time we get to verse 14, Lazarus has died. And now Jesus decides to come. And he shows up four days after Lazarus' death. Let's pick it up in verse 34. And he, Jesus, said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Take ye away the stone. One stone separated these people from a great miracle. Take ye away the stone. Now, why didn't Jesus move the stone? Didn't he have power to move a stone? I mean, he moved his own stone when he rose from the dead, right? Nobody needed to move that stone. When Jesus came out of that grave, the women came early that next morning to the sepulcher, and and they wondered who's going to roll away the stone. But when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. And an angel sat upon it and said, Why seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. So Jesus had the power to move a stone. Why didn't he move the stone? Well, that was something the people could do. You see, no person could do anything about the fact that Lazarus was dead. Only Jesus could perform a miracle of resurrection. But Jesus told those people to do what they could do. Take ye away the stone. Is there a stone that separates you this morning from an answer to prayer? Is there a stone that keeps you from seeing a miracle in your life or family? 
Is there a stone that keeps Royal View Baptist Church from a great miracle this morning? What stone do we need to move in order for God to show His miracle-working power? Now, in this text, as we go through it, I believe we're going to find four miracle-stopping stones. Let's go back where we left off at verse 7. We see the first one, the stone of doubt. In verse 7, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now this story takes some unusual twists and turns, doesn't it? Lazarus gets sick. Mary and Martha did what you and I would have done. They sent word to Jesus. Lazarus is sick. Your friend is struggling. You know, expect him to come and do something about it. Jesus does nothing. Then, a couple days later, he out of the blue says to his disciples, let's go back to Bethany. Let's go back to Judea. And the disciples said, "Uh, Lord, uh, last time we were down there, they tried to kill you. You're going to go back? He said, well, our friend Lazarus is sleeping. I need to go wake him up. Well, now they're really confused. They're thinking, if he's sleeping, that's a good thing. When you're sick, the best thing you can do is sleep, right? We're going to risk our life to go all the way down there to wake a man out of sleep? Jesus said, no, you misunderstand. Lazarus is dead. Whoa. And look at their response in verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. (laughs) Do you see some doubt here? You know, when we face a problem, the first reaction we have oftentimes is doubt. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing to be done about this. This is just out of my control. I don't have the resources. I don't have the strength. I, I don't have the understanding. I, there's nothing that can be done. I mean, the, this problem is here, and, and, and we're just going to have to live with it because there, there's nothing I can do. Our first response to a, a mountain that's in our way is oftentimes one of skepticism or doubt or pessimism, and we're saying, there's nothing I can do. We need to move that stone. I don't know how many times I've heard people say to their pastor, Pastor, I just don't see how we're going to do this. Pastor, I don't see how we're going to pay for that. Pastor, I don't see how we're going to support another missionary. Pastor, I don't see how we could build that building. Pastor, I don't see how uh, my neighbor's ever going to get saved. Pastor, I just don't see how I could ever get victory in my life or in this area. You know what? You're not supposed to be able to see it. We say, I just don't see We walk by faith, not by sight. See, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we look at life, and we look at some of the problems of life, and we say, I just don't see how this is going to work. I don't see how I'm going to solve this problem. I don't see. We're not supposed to see. 
He that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. It doesn't say it's improbable or unlikely. It says it's impossible. You cannot please God without faith. And it's amazing, I think, in our lives how many miracles we miss because of the stone of doubt. In Matthew 13, Jesus came to a a, a place, and it says in verse 58, He could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Isn't that a sad statement? Wouldn't it be be tragic if if the Lord looked at, at Royal View Baptist Church and he said, you know, I love that church. I'm the chief shepherd of that church. And I love that church, and I want to do something great there. I, I, want, to, I want to bless those people. I, I, want to, I want to start a revival there that could spread all over Phoenix. I, I want to start a Royal View Baptist. No, no, let's go on. There's, there's no faith there. Wouldn't that be tragic? What if God looked at my life or your life and said, well, I'd like to use that fellow. I'd like to use that lady. I, I'd like to use them to do something miraculous. No, we better find somebody else. There's no faith there. Are we missing some miracles today because of the stone of doubt. My oldest son, John, when he was in college, met a young lady whose name is April, and they began to be friends and, and uh, date, as we say. And when they finished college, they decided to get married. And, and we were excited about that. And, and uh, so into that summer after graduation, they married and, and uh, went up to uh, Central California and began to work in a church there and uh, began to serve the Lord. And we were excited for them, of course, to launch out into ministry and do God's work. And God was blessing their lives and blessing their ministry. And after a couple of years, they, they had a daughter. Her name's Katie. And uh, Katie was born. And what a delight that was to become a grandparent, you know. Katie's married now, so that's kind of depressing. But, but anyway, uh, uh, Katie came into our lives, and uh, we were excited about that. And two years later, another little daughter, Annie, came. And, and uh, now we have two grandchildren, Katie and Annie. And boy, life was good, you know. They were serving the Lord. And, and now at this point in time, John was traveling in evangelism. And as a family, they were moving around the country, as I had done. And, and uh, were traveling, preaching revival and God was using them, and and, uh, we were excited for them. And then one day, that word, cancer. Nobody wants to hear that word. And now, treatments and surgeries and medications and all that kind of stuff. And by God's grace, over a period of months, God enabled the cancer in April's body to be eradicated. And she received the news that she was cancer-free. Boy, that's that's exciting. And we were thrilled that God had answered prayer. But the doctors pulled John and April in one day, and they said, Now, as far as we can tell, the cancer has been eradicated from your body, but because of the medications we've had to use, to get rid of the cancer, it's put you in a position physically where you're not going to be able to have any more children. Well, that wasn't the most devastating news in the world. They had two beautiful little daughters and were very thankful for that. But they had hoped to have a larger family. So they took the news and they went home and just 
committed it to the Lord. I said, Lord, you know our hearts, you, you know our desires, and, and yet you have a will for our life, and we're happy that we're in your will, and, and yet we're going to just ask you by faith to allow us to have more children. And you're bigger than science, and you're bigger than the doctors, and you're bitter, bigger than medications, and, and if you want us to, you can give us another child. And if you do, Lord, we promise we'll try to raise that child for you. And they prayed for a number of years that way. And one day, we got a call. April's pregnant. Wow. They beat the odds. They beat science. They showed those doctors, right? Well, they were excited. We were excited. And they went back to the doctor. The doctor was not excited. He said, oh, you, you, you can't have this baby. You don't understand. The things in your body, they're going to cause this baby to have all kinds of problems. This baby's going to be born blind. It's going to be born deaf. It, it, it's going to have mental handicap. You, you cannot bring a child like this into the world. This, this, this pregnancy needs to be terminated immediately. Well, John and April said, no, we're, we're, not, we're not going to do that. We, we've prayed for this. This is an answer to prayer. We, whatever God gives, we, we want the doctor called specialists. They began to come in, talk to them individually and say, you can't do this. You, you've got to abort this baby. And John and April, they just stood their ground and said, no, we want to have this baby. Well, as I said, they were traveling in evangelism in those days and they were preaching a revival in Castaic, California. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles and a little church there in Castaic and they were preaching. It was Super Bowl Sunday. It was in February and, and, uh, John and April are both big football fans. They, they love football. April's a Steelers fan. Other than that, she's a pretty good person. But, but, but uh, she loves football as much as John does. And, 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 but they were kind of disappointed they were on the West Coast in Pacific time for the Super Bowl because, you know, on the, on the West Coast, the Super Bowl comes on like at 3.30 in the afternoon. And, and it's kind of bad because you watch the first half and then you go to church and you tape the game thinking you'll watch the second half when you get home, but by the time you get home, everybody knows the score, and it's kind of it's anticlimactic. So they were kind of disappointed. We're on the West Coast. We're not going to see this game. And, and uh, they got to the church, and I don't know if they talked about it or whatever, but the pastor said, hey, don't worry. Our whole church loves football. What we do on Super Bowl Sunday night is we have church, and we tape the game, and we are sworn with our hands on the Bible that nobody tells the score. If they hear anything about the game, they're sworn to secrecy because after church, we all come over to my house and we watch the game. Well, they were excited about that. So they had church after the game, went to the pastor's house, watched the game. It was a good game and got excited about it. April got a little too excited. And when it was over, she said, John, I think this baby's coming. Well, the baby wasn't due for several more weeks, but she's had babies before. She said, John, I'm having contractions. Well, they don't even know if there's a hospital in this little town. So they asked the pastor, and he said, well, yeah, there's this little, little rinky-dink hospital. We better get you over there. They went over, and sure enough, this baby was coming. So they walk into this delivery room with doctors they've never met, nurses, caregivers they've never met, and they began to pull up the data on the computer, and they said, oh, this is one of this, these babies. Specialists began to descend on that hospital, and that little baby was born that night premature, weighed hardly three pounds. And now all the tests began for hours. And finally they came in, the lead doctor came in to the recovery room there and he sat down and he said, well, 
your your little guy, he's uh, he's he's doing pretty good. He's he's small. He's going to be here for a while, but uh, he, he's 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 doing pretty well. In fact, we've we've got a number of tests complete now, and and really the only thing that we've found so far uh, is that he's deaf. And and really compared to what could have happened, this is a miracle. Well, it was. But John looked at that doctor whom he had never met until that night. And he said, sir, uh, could, could you do the hearing test again? The doctor said, no, we, we do it three times to make sure it's correct. And we did it three times and, and your, your little guy's deaf. You feel it all three times. And it's okay. And John said, I, I understand, but I, I'd like you to do the test again. Uh, we're Christians and we've been praying for God's glory, that he would give us a perfectly healthy child. I'd like you to do the test again. Well, the doctor looked at John. He said, sir, you don't have insurance. And I don't know how you're paying for all this stuff that we've already done. You want another test? John said, yeah, don't worry about that. Give him the test again. The doctor went out kind of shaking his head. As John tells the story, he went outside and he walked around the outside of that hospital. And he began to pray. He picked up a rock out of one of the, fire, out of one of the flower beds. Um, he actually stole it. It's in his office today. But <laughs> he picked up this rock, and I, I guess he chose it because it was maybe symbolic of God's creative power. And he walked with that rock, and he said, God, you made everything in this world. You made every, every single thing just as you created it and designed it. And you created my son. And I'm going to ask you by faith to allow him to hear so that you could get glory. He walked back in the hospital. A few moments later, the doctor came in. He said, I I did that test again. In fact, he said, I did it three more times because I couldn't believe the result. Your son's hearing is fine. You know, John's uh, 14 now. We call him third John. John's 14 now. He's just starting to grow. He's, he's in a growth spurt right now. He's finally, finally putting us some, some size on. His hearing's fine. When that boy wants to hear, he hears just fine. <laughs> I'm just saying, are we missing anything in our life because of the stone of doubt? Do we believe God can do impossible things? But I see not only the stone of doubt, I see the, st- the stone of discouragement. Look at verse 17. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, kind of picture this in your mind. It's four days after the fact. Lazarus is in the grave. He's been there four days. Jesus finally shows up into Bethany. And word spreads quickly whenever Jesus came to town. And so word comes to Mary and Martha, Jesus is coming. So Martha, being maybe the little more impetuous of the two sisters, runs out to meet him. Mary stays at the house. Martha, upon meeting Jesus falls down before him, said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. I, I, I think 
from those words, we would sense a bit of venting, a little bit of frustration. In other words, Lord, where were you? If you had come when we, when we asked you, this wouldn't have happened. We're in this predicament because of you. Now, I don't know if she meant that in a, in a, in a derogatory way, but, but she's venting. She's frustrated. She's disappointed. And so she's, she's venting this frustration. And Jesus speaks with her, and she goes back to the house and says, Mary, Jesus is here. He wants to see you. So now Mary goes out to meet Jesus, and Martha stays at the house. And look at it in verse uh, number uh, 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Does that sound familiar? The exact same words. So Martha goes out, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. Mary goes out later, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. They both said the same thing. You know what that tells me? That had been the topic around the dinner table the last four nights. Why wouldn't he come? Why? I thought he loved us. I thought he cared. I thought he told us, if you ever need anything, let me know. I, I mean, I, I thought that, that he would have come. What, what could have been more important? The stone of disappointment. I think I'm talking to people this morning in this crowd. You believe in the miracles of the Bible. If I talked about the crossing of the Red Sea by the nation of Israel on dry land, you believe that actually happened. You believe God parted the waters and the Israelites went across on dry land. You you believe that. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. You believe that Jesus, in John chapter 6, took five loaves, two small fishes, thanked God for them, broke them in pieces, gave them to the disciples, they to the people sitting in companies of 50, and when everybody was full of food, they gathered up the leftovers, 12 baskets full. You believe that happened because it's in the Bible. You believe that Jesus actually walked on water. I've never met a single person in this world who's walked on water. I've never met anybody that even tried. Jesus walked on water. You believe he did because it's in the Bible. And you've sat here at Royal View Baptist Church on a Wednesday night or maybe a Sunday night and someone has said, God answered my prayer. I just want to testify. God answered my prayer. God gave me a job. God God healed my friend of cancer. God provided a financial need. God uh, restored a relationship. You've heard of miracles even within your own congregation of what God has done. But for some reason, when you prayed, God said no. And it's left you disappointed. You loved him. You had faith. When you prayed, you, you trusted him. And he said no. And it's left you disappointed. Again, I wish I could count all the people in my lifetime that have said to me, I used to be a Christian. Now, let me just straighten up something here. Nobody ever used to be a Christian. Once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You can't stop being a Christian. Now, you can stop being a good Christian. You can stop being a faithful Christian. But once you're saved, you're saved for eternity. 
Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Father that gave them me is greater than all, and no man's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So we can't lose our salvation. But I know what they mean when they make that statement. When people say, I used to be a Christian, what they're saying is, I used to go to church. I used to sing the choir. I taught a class. I read the Bible, prayed, tithed. I did all that stuff. Went out, sold, I did that. And it didn't work. They're disappointed. Do you remember in the Old Testament a man by the name of Job? Job, the Bible says, was a great man in chapter 1. And it, when it says he was a great man, it didn't mean just physically. Now, he was a blessed man physically. You can read about his wealth there, unbelievable wealth. In fact, it says he was the greatest man in the East. 5,000 camels, 5,000 she-asses, 5,000 sheep. I mean, amazing flocks and herds, servants. He had a wonderful family, 10 children, seven boys, three girls. This man was blessed. But he was not only blessed materially, he was blessed spiritually because he was a man that feared God and eschewed evil. In fact, Job was such a godly man that he would get up early in the morning and offer a sacrifice according to the number of his children. So that would be 10. He'd give 10 sacrifices early in the morning just in case they sinned that day. He already had it covered. And it says, thus Job did continually. So he didn't do it just once. He did it every day. 10 sacrifices, first thing in the morning. Amazing man. But one day God seems to pull the rug out from under him. Word comes that some of his possessions have been stolen. Some of his servants taken captive. No more does he hear that. Another servant comes and says, the rest of your livestock are gone. They've been, they've been killed and your servants are killed. And then another messenger comes and says, all 10 of his children were in a house and they were, they were together and, and, and a whirlwind, a tornado comes through and they're all dead. And, and then we read where he, he gets boils over his whole body. He gets sick and he's in this horrible pain and torment physically. And, and his friends come and they're supposed to comfort him. But instead they're saying, Job, this is your fault. You're backslidden. You're not right with God. If you get right with God, all this won't be happening. And, and then his own wife says, Job, curse God and die. I mean, Job's at the bottom. But do you remember what Job said in chapter 13, verse 15? He said, though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him. I will maintain my own ways before the Lord. Boy, don't miss that last.